Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So part of this practice is being yourself. Like we were talking about earlier, Dogen saying, if you're going to paint spring, um, don't, don't paint cherry blossoms. Don't paint a metaphor for spring. Paint spring. Paint spring. And this is one of the important aspects of practicing in community, practicing with teachers, is not so much that you get to know them, but that uh, you can allow yourself to be known. So that you can show practice in your body, mind, heart. You can't just um, practice and hide and have inner um, realizations. Uh, Humans don't work that way. We protect ourselves that way. So your realizations have to be expressed. And so you don't want to express um, the form. You want to express the spirit of this practice. Like yoga does not get passed down through books. Yoga is passed along through who you are. What's the expression? Walk your talk. which is like saying, who are you? What if I asked you to show me who you are? When I was in Paris this year, we did this exercise together where I said to the group, who are you? Show me who you are. And people will come up with these clever intellectual things. Well, I'm nothing. 
There's a great there's a great Jewish joke about this. There's a there's a rabbi who um, he gets up in front of uh, on the bima in front of the sanctuary and the congregation, and he says, "I'm nothing. I'm zero, nothing, nil, less than zero. I'm nothing." And the congregation is so moved that they start clapping because they realize he's had an awakening experience. And then the junior rabbi is so moved, he gets up and says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Zero. Less than zero. Less than the absolute nothing. A servant of nothing. And the congregation says, well, And then the janitor gets up and says, I'm nothing, zero, nothing. And then the rabbi says, look who thinks he's nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So our awakening experiences still have to be put to work. And I asked this group, Tell me, who, who are you? Show me. I mean, it's mostly words like, oh, I'm nothing. Or, I'm this, I'm that. This went on for like half an hour. The group was getting so frustrated. Some people go, um, it's not real. Do you understand what I mean? It's not real self-expression. It's like talking about who you are. And then um, one woman in the group who had a newborn started leaking and then realized. And so she's like, I- I've got to go. I have to go see my daughter. And then everyone in the room understood. This is uh, true self-expression. She wasn't trying. And there was a feeling in the room that, oh, I understand. True self-expression. Dogen says, if you want to paint spring, don't paint cherry blossoms. Paint spring. Do you understand? So this is what we were just chanting. Um, I'm going to hand out, again, we don't have enough (coughs) for everybody, um, but if you can share, I thought maybe we could just look together at the first few lines of the Yoga Sutra. This was a text written probably about 2,000 years ago. Written by a great sage named Patanjali. Anjali means a prayer. Pat means to fall. Patanjali is a fallen prayer. The, The mythological story goes that Patanjali's mother gave birth to this son 
And um, when when she gave birth to him, she looked down, and he had um, half a human body and half a serpent's tail, and four arms. <laughs> and um, she freaked out, and so she dropped him. But she dropped him into the world. <laughs> That's what the word Patanjali means. A fallen prayer. Don't try this at home. <laughs> and um, so these are the first four lines that we chanted. Um, maybe we could just say the, the first one out loud. So just repeat after me and, and just look down at the words so you, you can get a sense. Um, Atta. Yoga, yoga anushasanam. Atta yoga anushasanam. So atta means now, present experience, right now. Right now. So we can say the same thing about time, right? That. Um, Time is not something that you're in relationship with. Um, that when you're syncopated, then um, this syncopation reveals that you are time. You are time. Or are you a separate self in relationship to the time? You are time. Time is not something that goes forward or backwards. Time is actually what you are when you're in time. In, in time. Are you here right now? The future is not here. And the future is actually just the past. Because you can't even think about the future without concepts from the past. So actually, there's no future at all. There's only the past. And the past is over. Sorry. Mm-hmm. How many of you are still holding on? Still holding on to the past. Sentimentality. So we have this relationship where it's like, If I hold on to the past, then I can hold on to a story that I have about myself, that I uh, have maybe an addiction to. And as we talked about last night, Abhinivesha is that, that fear of letting go of the story and not actually replacing it with anything. So yoga is like a great big garage sale of all those internal dialogues. I mean, even like family dinner. (laughs) Show up for dinner and it's like, you're showing up to a table of stories. 
that you have and they have and no one's actually relating to each other thanksgiving dinner you know it's great let's have a thanksgiving dinner with all of our family <laughs> and no one actually talks to each other until you're like stuffed full of turkey and dressing and half asleep with gas on the couch <laughs> and then finally it's like you actually look at somebody <laughs> or tofurkey <laughs> probably makes you more bloated it's better to stick with the turkey big gmo turkey <laughs> So, just notice in your relationships, the relationships where there's friction, where probably um, there is a lot that you can do to start to drop some of the stories that you have about other people. Because they're not about other people, they're about you. They're stories that you maintain about other, about other people so you can maintain a certain version of yourself to yourself. But um, there's no intimacy. There's no yoga. And isn't it strange how what we all want most is intimacy? And what we all fear the most is the possibility of intimacy. Like what we fear is like the possibility that we actually might be seen and then so at some level, it's like we feel that other people are pot- potential. It's like other people are dangerous, in a way, be- because they might see through um, what I'm trying to present, my self-image. And so you identify with the self-image, but but you you can't ground it. Any, anywhere. Because you can't ground your feelings about, you can't ground yourself with anything. Because the self is not groundable. Because it's just a, a story that you have. Like, you are, what you think of yourself is just like a whole conglomeration of stories glued together by memories and association and hope and fear. And every once in a while you have an experience where you're in time. And these are the experiences you probably remember the most in your life. When you've been totally in time. It makes a stronger impression on the brain. When you're in time. Where you lose track of yourself. The tenth day of a canoe trip. There's no mirrors. I know someone who was on a retreat in Burma, and he was on a long, uh, it was like a nine-month retreat, and uh, about three-quarters of the way through it, he he was just doing solo retreat in the cabin, and some professors were visiting the monastery, and by accident they opened his door and said, oh, hey, (laughs) what's your name? (laughs) And he forgot. (laughs) <laughs> he, he went to he forgot for, for a moment he forgot his name 
Imagine if you could swim away from your name. (laughs) Martha Graham says, a person can never be free until they lose their reputation. Have you ever had something happen in your life that tarnishes your reputation? How there's this disturbing, really disturbing element and also this little bit of freedom in it. And like really the times in your life that are most meaningful are times where you're not caught up in a story about yourself. Why else do you make art? Not for the plastic thing at the end, but for this experience of the process. Can you practice asana just for the sake of the asana? Like just to enjoy the practice? Or do you do you think it's some way that there's an end point? Like there, there's a place where the asana finally completes itself? Do you think that? So atta yoga nushasana means now is the teaching of yoga. Where are you looking? Now, the present moment, is the teaching of yoga. This is the teaching of yoga. Are you here for it? There's a great teacher here. I have a friend who, she um, is an apir, and she uh, went to school to learn about how to uh, take care of bees and make honey and so on. And at the end of her school, she was so frustrated because she, she knew all the theory, but she didn't really know how do the bees do that work. And she, she's a yogi. And so what she did was she built, she built these, um, I don't know what those boxes are called. Do you know the names of those boxes of the hives? Or the honeycombs created? Hive boxes. Hive boxes. <laughs> she built them out of plexiglass. And um, so she had a little cushion and she would sit in front and she would just watch them like for hours. And this was her teacher. Yoga chitta vritti nirodha. That yoga, intimacy of the present moment occurs when the chitta vrittis, when the constant elaborations of the mind are just allowed to be constant elaborations of the mind. So what happens is most of the time these thoughts occur and we hook into them and we identify with them. Like um, self-judgment. Does anybody here suffer from (laughs) self-judgment? So like self-judgment is a mode of awareness where you're totally identified with your thoughts about yourself and you believe them and you don't see the thoughts as thoughts. Like you don't see that right now you're wearing your self-judgment glasses. And so you think that you really are shit. I really am of no value. 
And then the more that you make yourself into an object, the more you think that it's real. So the more you keep judging yourself, the more you really think that the self is real. You see? But you don't see that you're identifying with a thought process. And that if you come back to the birds and to the breath, five minutes later, those thoughts will be about something else. You know? So yoga, being here in present experience, is interrupted, is obscured by our misidentification with the citta vrittis, with the turning constant modifications of the mind. Don't you see that those are just thoughts always going? And you can't stop them. They're so amazing. Just like sounds are always coming and going. You don't think the sounds are yours, <laughs> do you? Thoughts are not either. You can make them, but mostly in quiet. Any med- meditator starts to realize that thoughts just come and go, that I don't even think all those thoughts. They just, I don't know. They're part of the natural world. Tada! Remember chanting this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so in the 1800s, European um, magicians tried to use Sanskrit words to make their um, uh, tricks seem more exotic. So this is what we, we associate to the word tada, right? And that's what it means. It means. <laughs> Ta-da! So listen to what Patanjali is saying here. There's, there's also some humor in He's saying, Atta Yoga Anushasanam. Now, this is yoga. And it's really, there's a great teaching in this. But you don't, you can't touch and be touched by what's happening in present experiences. Because you're not relating to what's really happening. You're relating to your ideas about everything. And you're confusing your ideas about other people for other people. Are you doing this with your lover or with your children? Confusing your ideas about them for them? I sometimes feel that in in my psychotherapy practice, more people come to psychotherapy because of people's expectations and then their own internalized expectations. We're not here to fulfill other people's expectations. We're, we're here to enjoy each other. And the more that you keep projecting your ideas on other people, the more you, you, you close down the possibility of a kind of freedom in your intimate relationships with all your knowing. Ta-da! Then awareness 
can abide in its own nature. Maybe that's not the best translation. The best translation is Svarupa means uh, like Sva means self and Rupa is the form, form of the self. So, um, and Avastana means um, uh, to, to like dwelling, dwelling in yourself. Not, not self like your self-image, but, but dwelling in who you are. In other words, when, when all those ideas and expectations and elaborations of the mind start to settle down, then you're free to just, what's left is who you are. And that's what I was saying earlier about asking you, who are you? You have to drop your strategizing to show me who you are. You're maneuvering. Don't paint cherry blossoms. Otherwise, vitaratra, otherwise, awareness takes itself to be the patterns of consciousness. Right? Otherwise, the awareness that's left when all the patterns settle down, you think that that, or another way of saying it is that you miss, it's a case of mistaken identity, is that you think that all those thoughts about yourself are really you, right? And so there's there's a there's a a, a delusion there, a delusion, and an important knot to untie. Because when you die, all of this this storytelling that you're doing all the time also dies. So, um, have you ever, uh, have you ever been with someone who's dying, who really doesn't want to die? Have you ever had this experience, being with a dying person who just doesn't want to go? So painful. Still in a fight with their son. Still in an argument about the estate. Still trying to fight the cancer. And then you really see in those moments the only thing you're holding on to is a theory. All you're holding on to is a story. And you can't die with benevolence. Good feeling for everything. If, if you're, you, you can't let go of yourself. So that's why we practice Shavasana. So every day you just you practice your dying. So let go. What are you holding on to? 
Because everything you're holding on to is impermanent. It's changing. These birds are so beautiful, you know, but you can't keep them around. They're going to go away in a few months. Angie and I were talking this morning about, you know, about Michael Stone. And he comes and does a workshop and then we have this materialistic idea that he should come and do a workshop and then it's good so that next time more people will come. And the next time more people will come. And then we think that there's a relationship between more people and popularity and good teaching and and the brand of Michael Stone. And what an illusion this is, caught up in the future, trying to ground ourselves in persona. The studio might not be here in a couple of years. Certainly the one I was at last year. The owner's gone. So yeah, but if I'm thinking, oh, we have to build this, and this is like a, this is a, uh, something that has to grow and progress, and the whole kind of materialistic trip we have about our careers, and then I can't have a quality time with you, because I'm thinking about how to get you back, how I can be invited back. I better not say anything to bother anyone. I better give you what you want. <laughs> But we're here right now, and this is our community, so how, how we can be here and really have um, a, a, a genuine quality of relationship here together. It's not, it's not about um, anything other than that. And so I, I want to make up a story like, oh, it's a good workshop, and then I can come back, and we can do this again, and... You know, and, 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 and you can deepen your practice. And it's so caught up in the future. Or you end this workshop, oh, I've, I need more. I need to study more. I need to... Like, you, like you're not enough. And this is what's so radical. It's so radical what Patanjali is saying. He's saying, you know, like to compare it to Freud, you know, Freud is saying, like, the thing you repress most is, um, you know, sexual energy. And maybe in cultural Victorian times, maybe that's that the case. Jung said, no, no. That's why he broke up with Freud. You know. What you repress most is um, the desire to connect with something bigger than yourself. That's really the, the basic drive in people that needs to be freed up. And then Adler split up with them. No, the thing that we really want is power, to have power. And you know, of course, when you read it backwards, that those are just all the psychologies of those theorists. That's their psychology. And then Ernest Becker, in his beautiful book from 1974, The Denial of Death, says that what we deny most, actually, what we repress most, 
is the fact that we're going to die. And that all this storytelling and everything you're, you're invested in, it's, it's, it has an expiry date. And that if you repress it, so we all know the basic rule of psychoanalysis is that anything that you repress comes back again in the form of a symptom. And Ernest Becker says, so the, the symptom of repressing death is aggression. But Patanjali is saying something else. He's saying the thing that we're repressing is not a death that's going to happen in the future. It's the fact that you actually didn't exist to begin with. That, that if you really look at yourself, it's mostly this like conglomeration of stories and images and history that doesn't have like a real core in it. No. Do you understand when I say that, what I mean by that? Like if I ask you to really contemplate who you are, it, all you're going to be in is like stories about yourself. That's not who you are. It's like a part of who you are, your ideas about who you are. And so something about that is really disturbing. And all of you have had times in your life where when you're quiet, you can feel a kind of emptiness. Like a lot, like, like, like a vacuum, like nothing. Like in the center of you, there's nothing. And it's kind of threatening. When you really intuit that you're nothing, the ego tries to quickly build up, like this joke, I'm nothing. The ego tries to quickly build up a self around it. And, and that's where a lot of our ambition comes from, is that we try to ground ourselves with things like money and, and, and uh, family and like whatever we can to, to fill up that feeling of emptiness in our core. But the joke is that nothing, nothing can fill it. Like it was RRSP season. Listen to the language of what happens around RRSP season and the, and the fear that you, you, you better save up. And, and the way that's wrapped up in this idea that I'm, I've got to ground myself somehow in the future or now. And you all know that once you have your second home, you've got to get a third home. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like you, you spend so much energy renovating your kitchen. And then one day you walk downstairs realize it's just a kitchen. I had to throw my toaster out. It's not stainless steel. It doesn't match my new kitchen. <laughs> Still going to toast your toast. 
that car. And then you get the car and it's just a car. But it can't it can't do for you what you need it to do for you. Trying to ground yourself. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I think it's interesting um, the paradox because for so many what we or what I have heard for a long time about the law, I just the people who take grounded, who are so grounded, and so mm-hmm. on. I think um, what you're saying, what Dandre is saying, mm. flies absolutely in the face of that. And yeah. The whole notion that there is no ground to get, that this whole notion of trying to be comfortable with impermanence. It's not that there's no ground, it's that there's no self. Mm-hmm. And so you can't ground it because mm-hmm. it's not real. Do you see what do you see what I mean? Like and so the problem is not that there's not a core in the self. The problem is all of your strategies of trying to fill up that feeling that you need to ground. And then what happens is what was a vacuum suddenly becomes like a spring. Because when you stop all the, 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 the craving, the wanting, what's left is a feeling of being everything. And often a feeling of wanting to serve others. Does that make sense? Can I can I read just a little passage here, and then we'll, we'll keep going? And I know there's a there's a hand up. Um, this is from uh, um, a writer in uh, South Africa's newspaper called the Financial Mail. Talking about the the new economy um, and talking about how the real prisoner nowadays is the consumers who are imprisoned by envy. The basic resource of the new economy is not something they provide us. It's something that we provide them, mind share, in the charming idiom of the trade. Now ask yourself this. What if there's only so much mind to share? What if there's only so much mind to share? If you've wondered how people could feel so depleted in such a prosperous economy, how stress could become the trademark affliction of the age, Part of the answer might be here. If there's only so much attention that's possible, then you can't have it fragmented in the way it's fragmented. Does this make sense? And then he says, the attention economy minds us the way the industrial economy mines the earth. It mines us first for incapacities and wants. Our capacity for interaction and reflection must become a need for entertainment. 
our capacity to deal with life's bumps and jolts becomes a need for grief counseling or Prozac. The progress of the consumer economy has come to mean the diminution of ourselves. I won't go on. But it's a really interesting notion, right, that that um, attention, awareness, is really the greatest natural resource. And I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I spend too much time on email. And I, and, and I can't go from reading an email to reading a book. Because it's a different kind of syncopation. You don't read a book like you read an email, right? At our at the the local video store down the road from our house, the owner was telling me that um, between the ages of fifteen and twenty six, um, nobody comes in to rent videos, DVDs. Very, very few people in that age bracket are renting DVDs. Yeah. And part of the reason is that they can't watch a whole movie, he said. It seems like when they do, they don't really, it's hard to really sit and watch a whole movie. Like I was saying last night, this is a, an attention deficit society. And maybe a lot of psychologists really fail to see how the individual symptoms of attention deficit coming into our clinical consulting rooms are, are cultural symptoms coming through individuals. And so then we do this practice of like watching the breath. And like, what's interesting about that? Because you could be you could be out shopping right now, and like the high you get from like another bra. So I want to ask you a question, which is, um, I want you to just be honest and just reflect on something in your life right now, um, something in your mind that you really want. Is there a fantasy right now of, of something? And again, it doesn't have to be like a material item. It could be time off. But is there is there an object that is there something you really really want? Can anybody be honest and answer that question? Is there something you really want? You really what are you really wanting? Okay. Yeah. I would like my 20-year-old son to not spend 12 hours on the internet. Uh-huh. I really, really want him to not do that. Yeah. <coughs> Somebody else? 
I really want my arm to be better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really want a beach. A beach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else. There's something you're really wanting. Maybe you're a bit shy to say. I don't know. That can be at peace. At peace. I want peace. I want to be at peace. I want to be at peace. At peace. Where's that? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you wanting to be at peace is kind of a summation of some of the things other people have just said. If my son gets Mm -hmm. off the internet, I'll be at peace. (laughs) 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 If she just cleans her room. Someone else, is there something you really want, wanting that you, as of now, don't, don't have? Without editing. Well, I'm wanting to, try to stop trying so hard. To stop mm. trying so hard. Yeah. 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 One more person from this side of the room. Yeah. I want a perfect life really. A perfect love relationship. Perfect. Perfect. No So in, for Patanjali, the, the cause of suffering, the cause of dukkha, is um, attachment and aversion. And uh, the Buddha uses a term to describe attachment and aversion. He uses the term tanha. We said tanha. 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 Which uh, means, it's usually translated as desire or craving. And I like to translate it as wanting. The, 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 really, the cause of suffering is, is wanting. Wanting things to be different than they are. Wanting. So, what happens most of the time is you are all familiar with the object of, you, of your wanting. You don't recognize the wanting. It's like, I just want my son off the computer. <laughs> I just want that man to come walking down the street and pull out roses. (laughs) (laughs) On one knee. (laughs) And then your mind is filled up with fantasies. Ryan Gosling walking down. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) My wife said to me the other night, let's just rent a light movie. Just go to the store and just rent anything with Ryan Gosling. <laughs> so I went in and I, I, I know the guy who owns the store. 
Well, I'm renting this from Michelle. He says, uh, oh, this, these movies are so popular with women. <laughs> <laughs> Could there be some wanting? <laughs> so again, what's interesting is not the object. We're always focused on the object of our wanting. But can you get to know what wanting feels like? Can you get to know what wanting feels like? You know, Like wanting has a little bit of... Um, uh, contraction in it. So it's not that sometimes we don't want to do work to make change, but it's where there's a contraction around the object that there's trouble. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Like the difference between an aspiration and expectation. Mm-hmm. Expectation is the enemy of intimacy. So to really know this energy in you of wanting and to also start to see that you can't ever satisfy the wanting. Because wanting is just a natural energy. So don't feed it because it's insatiable. It's like a hungry ghost. And, and, And you can't ever, the hungry ghosts are never satisfied. So just know this this place in you where there's wanting. Wanting, wanting, wanting. And you can do simple exercises like all of you. If there's one thing that you're really wanting to buy right now for your house, for your apartment, maybe there's one thing you really want or for your wardrobe. Maybe this week has there been something you've been thinking about? that you really want to buy, maybe? Come on. <laughs> okay, this month? Mm-hmm. Is there kind of like a big thing? What, like what? Oh, gray shoes, gray patent shoes. Gray shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just probably you've had so many images of yourself mm. in those shoes. <laughs> what Ryan Gosling would say. How that will bring the perfect love relationship, which is like being on a beach at peace. <laughs> Someone else, what what do you really want? Is there something you've been re- wanting to buy? Anybody? Vitamix 5000. Vitamix 5000. <laughs> it's probably more expensive than those shoes. <laughs> and just like, so, so just pick something in your life, you know, that you really want, and, and you're not going to get that. <laughs> Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Don't get that. But what if you are thinking of something like marriage or kids, and it, mm-hmm. I mean, it's outside of your present moment right now, yeah. but it's not something you want to think that you don't want. Yeah, I'm 35 now, and I really want a baby, and I don't have a man. Mm-hmm. Clock's ticking. Same thing. That to notice the difference between a, 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 an aspiration in your heart and wanting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wanting. 
Aspiration is wonderful. Like you play trumpet, and then one day you hear Chet Baker. It changes your world. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! Like I, all I can do now for the rest of my life, I realize, is play trumpet. And it's not that you want to be Chet Baker. It's that something happened. And there's a kind of idealization that's healthy. It's inspiring. Inspire means to breathe. Mm -hmm. Expectation, there's no breath in it. (laughs) And oh my God, you're a single woman in this culture and you don't have a partner and you're not a mother and you know like okay there's feelings around that and there's maybe this real kind of felt sense that you'd be an amazing mom and maybe you will adopt or maybe you will find a way to be a mother in some way but it's not the same thing as wanting you understand where there's like the tightness in it that you need that and it's somehow going to complete you I don't know maybe Mike should be up here talking about this financial security (laughs) you know what happens like the state of mind when how much money do you need? And like in our culture, it is considered rude to ask somebody about their money. It's like sexual energy in Freud's Vienna is money now. Hand up here. As we've been talking about this, I keep thinking of the word contentment and the relation of that to what we're speaking about. Because contentment is something I think every person longs for, Mm -hmm. but doesn't necessarily, because of our experiences Mm -hmm. and our stories, Mm -hmm. when we go through and up and Mm -hmm. down. Is contentment like before enlightenment? Or, you know, I don't understand that. But I keep thinking of that word. Yeah. Well, potentially doesn't use the word enlightenment. He uses the word awareness. It's kind of interesting. Um, one of the things that the Buddha says that's so beautiful is one time the Buddha defines enlightenment. Like straight on. Someone asks him, what is enlightenment? And he answers. And he says, enlightenment is what's left when wanting is relinquished. So it's not like contentment. It's not like something you get. Do you understand? It's just what's left when the wanting is relinquished. And then there's a moment of awakening. A moment of being awake, I should say. A moment of awaring. Even we say awareness and it sounds like a thing, pure awareness, like it's some hovering witness. There's just awaring. And awaring is 
characterized by contentment. And so it's just what's left. And you've all felt this in your life. Like, do you notice maybe places in your asana practice where it's just so fascinating to work with what's obviously a really profound, habitual, unconscious holding pattern that arises? You know, maybe there's a posture and suddenly woven into this physical holding pattern are emotions and distractedness and judgment maybe and like all glued in this grunty, in this knot, you know? Um, Can you relate to that? Can you open to that and just breathe that? Or does striving happen? Wanting to get out of that, wanting to be beyond that. Is there striving in your practice? Wanting. Like when you, when you see some postures from a, a more advanced series, is there a curiosity and interest of the aesthetic and therapeutic benefits? Maybe? Or is there like some wanting? A little bit of wanting. Looking at the body of the person practicing next to you, oh, if I only had her hamstrings, then like really I'd be happy. And like she's looking at someone else. (laughs) (laughs) How come I'm not? How come I'm not happy? (laughs) What is the relationship of of the emotions to the process of being? That they're just as natural and sacred as everything else. The the feelings, the emotions are not a problem when you can just let them be feelings and emotions. Impermanent phenomenon moving through the mind-body process. But the problem is, is the clinging. Yeah, we prioritize happiness over sadness. Yes, maybe. I mean, sure. I think so. I think some people also um, prioritize sadness over happiness. Mm-hmm. I mean, some, some of us, I think, uh, have an easier time actually being melancholy than being happy. Like myself, for instance. I, I like more, a little bit more melancholy than too much happy. <laughs> Yeah. Like to the field. Yeah. We name them something. Yeah, you name them something. And then you have ideas about them. Does that does that respond to your? You're saying we're not trying to get rid of the wanting, just not fueling it, because it's going to come. You can't get rid of the wanting. Yeah, it's there. It's just going to come and go in your life, you know, moment to moment, but you're not feeding it. You're really knowing what wanting is. Mm-hmm. There are certain mind states that we really don't know how to work with very well. So wanting is an example. Like when wanting arises to really know, oh, this is wanting. As opposed to, oh, I want that, those shoes, and if I get those shoes, oh, no, I shouldn't buy the shoes. Oh, no, I should buy the shoes. No, I shouldn't buy the shoes. 
I buy the shoes. No, they're so expensive. <laughs> you know, I'm like going in and out of the store. Try them on at this store and this store. <laughs> I think we'll try them on again. She's going to think I'm crazy. We have them like on hold in four stores. <laughs> okay, I'll just buy them. And then next week it's like, oh, they're so nice and yellow. <laughs> And then the fashion is like, yellow is the hot color. Yellow. <laughs> oh, man, I should have got them in yellow. But to notice just the wanting. Notice the wanting. The wanting. Just tightening up. Just like you notice anger, envy. Noticing envy and greed. Noticing greed. Striving. And this is why we practice, right? Starting to get to know these mind states. So, so we're all together here, you know, sharing in this moment, and then the, the mind comes in and says, like, this is, you know, this is good because I'm learning something, and, you know, Michael has said something, and, and this was Michael Stone's workshop, <laughs> and then now I'm going to try and practice that, and... And then, like, we set up this whole conceptual map of it all. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Like, but that's not real. That's, that's a misidentification. It's, we're, we're here co-creating this, this experience together. You know? And we don't have that much time together. And, and when we do, when I, when I teach longer intensives, what we do is we break out in groups and You've been there, and, and David, and Glenna, and these. We get people to work together in groups and, and debate these these topics and see what we come up with. So it. So 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 there's a sense that there's a culture of awakening. A, a spiritual practice that's concerned with my transcendence. My enlightenment is not useful in in our culture right now. It's not useful. The the, the rivers need you, and they don't have time for you to wait around to get up and out of here. This is really um, this is a misidentification with your own thoughts about enlightenment. This is it. This is it. What's behind your your notion that that it has to be something other than this? Do you know what I mean? Like when if you think that like spirituality is like something that's beyond this, 
it can't, it's not this. Then my question to you is what motivates that assumption? Is there something in this that's not satisfying? And if there is, it has to do with your wanting, not the world. Because you'll go through your whole life always wanting some kind of peak experience or something. And then you have to come down. And then the down is below the up. And then we're just caught again in hope and fear. Um, I guess I, what I don't understand is it seems that it's so much part of being a human being. Like I look at my one, my one-year-old, my three-year-old, uh-huh. and that want, that mm-hmm. me, mine, my, and mm-hmm. it's so even in my one-year-old, it's so strong. It's how he knows himself. Sure. So what is it about human being? Like mm-hmm. why are we? Do we seem to be built? this way that in the end is so destructive, yeah. essentially. I mean, this whole, yeah, I just, I don't, what, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, a, a kid <laughs> needs to build up a, a certain sense of separateness mm-hmm. to start to have a healthy self. And then the wonderful thing with children is they also, if they're given an environment that's supportive enough, Present moment alarm. Someone's not present. Okay. So I bring that with me and I put it in the corner. And it can pick up if someone's distracted. And then it goes off. And I don't like to embarrass people, but it tells me who it is. (laughs) Um, So thanks for coming back. You know, Winnicott, a great child psychologist, he says, you know, like, if, if, if the caregiver can really support the child um, to be alone, it's the greatest gift. Because then the child has, in Winnicott's words, the capacity to go on being. Not too much not too little, just the right amount. So you're you're getting the meal prepared, and they're bugging you and bugging you, <laughs> and then for a moment they go off and they they get lost in the Lego. And in that moment, they're that's samadhi. Just they're not thinking about themselves, and maybe you get lost for a minute in chopping tofu. Um, and so we go back and forth between these and so the child needs to have a healthy sense of self to the point where it just automatically naturally drops away they're not constantly checking and rechecking themselves which happens if the environment is such that they can't have the capacity and maybe um, you're not there enough 
and they really need you. And so they start to strategize how they can, or they feel that you're so needy that they figure out how they can make you happy. And then there's such a disservice because in, in the mother's or father's narcissism, they, they can't um, let the kid be. And so the kid has to figure out how to help you get happy so that you can let them be. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Don't try so hard. So Winnicott says, um, so the best practice for a mother is being good enough. Good enough. He says, the good enough mother. Good enough. The good enough yogi. You're fine. You 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 don't need to get anywhere. And maybe if you stop trying to get anywhere... The, even the asana practice will just become so joyful and interesting. You know? I'm not trying to get something. Get something. I'm training. <laughs> Maybe one more comment or question. I'm sorry, I said we were going to talk about prana and apana, but maybe we'll do that tomorrow. (laughs) Tomorrow afternoon. I think I'd like to work on backbending tomorrow. Mm. I was was working on forearm stand because we were going to do some backbending after, and then I realized that we've been practicing for three hours. Three hours? That's why I feel like... Would it be okay if I gave you some homework? Um, I, I really want you to try and drop into um, this uh, mode of listening without knowing it. And uh, really try and put this to work tonight uh, when you're with people. Like when people are talking, not to like relate what they're saying to what you know already, yeah. and then like before they can finish, you have something to say about that. You know, you know that kind of like, like just you guys talking about what you know already. You ever hear yourself tell a story, and as you're telling, you're like, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like listening without memory. Listening without memory. And let me suggest that whenever you're not listening, there's wanting. There's some kind of wanting. Wanting to be seen, maybe. Wanting to feel real. Wanting to... Wanting. Something wanting. Maybe wanting to take a conversation in a different direction. Because you, 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 there's feelings coming up that like, you, you don't want to bear. It's unbearable. Listening without knowing. 
that possible? Without memory. Hopefully this is a relief. The Buddha says, like, if there's no wanting, then that's a awakeness. That's buddhi. Buddhi is real intelligence. And then you're in time. And then your spring. So let's finish chanting in English as we did last night.